one big news story these last, what, 89 days of, uh, of struggle at airports across the country, major airports, YVR, uh, uh, Pearson Airport in Toronto, and also uh, in uh, Montreal. It's been a very difficult time to travel. A good friend of mine just returned from uh, a vacation. Finally, after years of waiting, the family went on vacation to Greece, took them three days to get home. Luckily, though, they had their passports up to date, so they didn't have to have that moment of panic and then stand in line for perhaps days on end. Days. One friend of mine took three days of 12 hours a day sitting outside a Service Canada office only to finally travel to Victoria to get the passport that she needed urgently for her son. It is one of those things that has people really up in arms, angry, in fact. Here's a taste of that anger with Abigail Beeman's uh, piece on Global News. Have a listen. Canadians across the country have been camping out or sticking it out at passport offices. Shame on this country. Shame on this government. Shame. I've been sleeping here every day during the week. So this is night number three for me of all night at a passport place. And some are dire. My mother-in-law is in hospital. She's not doing well, so we need to go and see her urgently. I understand that we've got glitches. This isn't a glitch. This is broken. Yeah. It's broken. Let's get some insight as to what broke this and what might be the fix. Andrew Griffith is the former director general of the Citizen Citizenship and Multiculturalism Branch for Citizenship and Immigration Canada, and he joins us on the line. Andrew, happy Canada Day. Thank you for taking some time out for us. Happy Canada Day to you as well, and thanks for having me. Let's go to the root of the problem. Is this a staffing issue? Was this an issue with uh, just these Service Canada offices not being prepared for the influx of, of people who just all of a sudden opened their passport and went, uh-oh, we need to renew? It's worse than that in many ways because the government in its planning documents was aware of the likely surge in demand of passports once the pandemic restrictions were uh, relaxed. But for some reason, uh, Service Canada and IRCC, which is also responsible for the passport program, didn't staff up early enough, didn't prepare enough. And the end result is a lot of that frustration that you were recounting earlier. Yeah. One of my friends went into when they finally got into an office that they had been waiting out line in a lineup for for dozens of hours like they had gotten there well before it opened and were pretty much 50 people deep and then it didn't move uh and then once you know i think it was the third day that she finally got in uh and there was one person behind the counter and there were 12 kiosks how does that even happen good question (laughs) yeah i mean it's a head scratcher yeah i mean i i i think you know it's really striking in many areas of how the pandemic has exposed some weaknesses in the government and and other agencies in terms of uh, planning, preparation, and being prepared for what was seen as an expected surge in demand. Um, And I think, you know, the uh, various measures that the government and the minister have announced you know, will alleviate the situation, but it still does not excuse sort of the uh, lack of preparation uh, for and allowing this kind of situation to emerge. 
Right. When Minister Gould stepped forward and said, you know, this was a set of difficult, a difficult set of circumstances. It's so much more than that for so many people that the stress and strain of the need. There was a time not long ago, pre-pandemic, I guess, that you could have an expedited passport process. Um, and, and this, as you said, has really been exposed uh, the shortcomings of government are really glaringly exposed in this moment in time. And it feels like there's a, a lack of urgency to repair it um, when this is such a vital document to Canadian citizens. Well, I, I, I mean, government is complicated, perhaps overly so, but it is complicated. So when something goes wrong, it usually takes some time to fix it just because you can't turn things on and off on, the, you know, on a dime. It just takes some right. time. Um, and so, you know, when I look at sort of the, the measures that have been announced to try and sort of address some of the issues in the short term, I think a lot of it, I think those are reasonable in the sense that they're doable and that by doing triage in terms of what, who needs the passport more urgently based on travel uh, and the like, um, improving communications in terms of wait times and everything, that helps reduce some of the frustration. It doesn't eliminate it because, of course, if people want to get on a plane um, and they need the passport and uh, they may have left it a bit too late, it doesn't help them uh, in, in substance. But at least for the people who have a bit more flexibility, it may um, reduce some of the tension that one is seeing at the passport offices. Mm -hmm. We're with Andrew Griffith, former Director General of the Citizenship and Multiculturalism Branch for the Citizenship and Immigration Canada. And Andrew, when it comes to staffing these offices, the people who actually put their hands on the paperwork and, and put it through the many levels of, of security um, to, to get your passport done, what amount of training is associated with that, that staff member? Like when, when the need is there, if somebody's like, hey, I, I could take a government job in, in a Services Canada office, um, what do I need to do to, to get in there and, and be a part of the solution? Well, I think there are two levels of knowledge that are required. So you have people who are in the offices who basically check the passport form for completeness. Right. That's a relatively straightforward process and probably doesn't require too much training. It probably requires some training, but not extensive training. The actual second stage, um, the people who actually sort of look at the application and assess it for eligibility and, and the like, that's more complicated um, and requires greater training and probably more liaison with other, other agencies. Uh, so... In terms of sort of the, the front end part, when somebody go, walks into the office, that should be relatively easy and relatively is a key word there to address fairly quickly. But the back end processing function, actually getting the passport, um, that's a bit more complicated. And when we talk about the volumes that we've seen um, post pandemic, I mean, a lot of pent up travel desire across this country and really across the world. But when we're when we're looking at the numbers of of passport applications that are being submitted, it it, it is really astoundingly increased over what traditionally we would see even coming close to a peak travel season like Canada Day. Well, actually, you know. Uh, Brian Lilly of the Toronto Sun did an analysis looking at uh, 2017-18 stats, and it actually shows the demand that we're seeing right now is about just over half of 
historic stats. So that's not the issue. I think what happened during the pandemic is that people were reallocated or, or positions weren't filled. And so when demand rebounded to a more normal level, they weren't prepared. But historically, apparently, the numbers are not actually that high. Oh, you know what? I misread that article in the Star. I read that this morning and I was looking at it. I thought the windows were shorter for the numbers. So I did misread that. Thank you for the correction, Andrew. I appreciate it. So this is not a ma- uh, a- an instance of greater demand. It is just a shortfall in in staffing the service. Yeah, that that that, that reflects the fact that demand plummeted, obviously, during the pandemic and then suddenly right. is starting to rebound to more normal levels. So it... The, the the fix is when you said from your learned perspective, when do you predict that things might start to stabilize here? And and you mentioned the fact that there that Minister Gould had announced that there would be some sort of um, order to be brought into play that is like if you're urgently in need of of your documents because your travel is is within a certain window, which is something that we became rather accustomed to prior to the pandemic or being in the lineup at the airport and they come through and say, anybody's on flight 112 and they'll pluck you out of the big long lineup to get you going. Uh, I kind of feel like that's that's what's going to happen with getting your passport. But for those who are sitting there going, I just want my documents up to date. Um, you know, not realizing that when they say it's going to take, you know, uh, 14 days to have this passport uh, in your hand if you mail it in. They mean 14 business days, right? So that's yeah. not, you know, what are some of the tips that you might give to somebody who's looking at this going, okay, how am I going to best navigate this? Is there is there a way to well, streamline things? Well, the basic advice, and this is one that I follow in our family because we have family located elsewhere. So we have to travel um, is always keep your passport up to date and always, and up to date means, you know, um, six months validity. Um, So that's the the basic thing. Now I know not everybody can do that. And I know that some people understandably had other preoccupations during the pandemic. So they let things slide, but the best thing to do is really to allow for lots of time. Right. Get ahead of it. that's right. And that's what I tell my kids. I say, watch this stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because some of us get the, the longer term passport, pay the little extra to make sure that we don't have to worry about it every couple of years. Um, But with kids, you have to update it because their photos are outdated so quickly and and you have to stay on the kid's passport. That's my advice. (laughs) Learn that the hard way. Yeah. Andrew, thank you so much for giving us your your learned perspective here and 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 you know offering up some of that you know pack your patience if you uh, want to get your passport renewed, but it will ultimately eventually be resolved. That's what I'm hearing from you. That's correct. Yes, and thanks very much for having me. And uh, again, good reminder for everybody: keep your passports up to date. I've got a great story here for you. It's about how we could repopulate endangered species. Uh, in Canada through science. You know, we talk a lot about climate change and how overfishing or invasive species have impacted our oceans, our lakes, and and there's some significant science being done at Dalhousie University and a professor of biology at Dalhousie uh, specializing in evolution and genetics, a researcher who's helping to repopulate Atlantic whitefish in Nova Scotia is joining us on the line. Professor Paul Benson is with us. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, hi. Thank you. 
very excited about reading up on the research you're doing and the successes that you're finding with regard to helping restock what would be a, a, a species that would be, you know, wiped from the earth, really, uh, due to all of the issues that I that I laid out there, whether it be climate change or overfishing or um, or invasive species. Can you talk a little bit about first why you started specifically with the whitefish? Sure, um, and I, I will say that you know, we are pretty excited too to be at the point we, you know, we've reached now with um, you know captive breeding and releasing these fish to the wild, but. Um, you know, this is a species I have been interested in for many years. Um, it's been endangered for the literally the entire time it's been known to science. Really? Um, you know, as soon as scientists recognized it as a as a as a distinct species, it was also recognized to be dangerously clo- close to extinction. Uh, and that was a few decades ago, and things have only gotten worse since then. So when you talk about captive breeding, which is what you reference off the top, the excitement associated with captive breeding and then introducing, reintroducing the species back to, to try and build up, um, to, to, to bring them from the brink of extinction, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it. I mean, that's the, that's the truth. And the fact I'm reading the article in the national post, uh, that, that features what you're doing is this. For somebody going, oh, this is fish farming. This is not new. Can you kind of explain the difference of what your your science and your your process is here? Sure. I mean, you know, it, it is. You know, we we are breeding fish in captivity, so it has that much in common with fish farming. But in every other respect, it's it's the opposite. Um, uh, we are doing everything we can to keep these fish wild. So even though you know it's necessary to you know to grow some up in captivity. In order to make more of them, um, you know, we are we are doing it ever so carefully to stop these fish from becoming domesticated, like a farm salmon would be. Um, right. We don't want these fish associating, you know, shadows of people, you know, looming over them with food. We want them to be wild. Um, so we're, we're we're being very careful with that. Um, so being a West Coaster, you know, born and raised in Vancouver, as a small child, I remember going to the Capilano fish hatchery where, you know, they would raise salmon to fry and then release them uh, at a certain level uh, into the river to head out to the ocean and, and become wild salmon, as opposed to the fish farm where yeah. those would be grown in pens to then be sold for food. Is, do I have that right, or is that too simplistic? You, you, ha- you have that exactly right. And those fish in pens, I mean, they are, oh, I'm, I'm not sure how many generations away from the wild now, but, but, you know, 20 or 30 generations at least. And they are not the fish that their ancestors were. And, you know, mm. they, have, they have, you know, moved, they, are, they are on the trajectory to becoming you know, the fishy equivalent of chickens, you know, they are adapted to living in pens, not in the wild. And Um, then we can get into the depth of all of what goes wrong in those pens and, and the, and the sea lice and how it impacts the, the environment and, and, and the, the way that, that some fish farms operate others much better. Uh, And, and even now we're talking about, um, uh, who was it? Ned Bell was on with me, Chef Ned Bell, who is an ocean-wise chef, and he was talking about how you know there are on land um, f- f- cultivating fish farms that you know growing shrimp. You know we're we're getting to a place where technology and and the awareness of the studies that that scientists like yourself 
um, are able to to support the food chain in ways that we we just have to acknowledge when people yes. say I only eat wild salmon. Well, wild salmon stocks are are shrinking at an alarming rate, are they not? They are, they are, they absolutely are, and. Uh, you know, farmed, um, you know, sea, seafood, you know, fish and shrimp and, uh, and you know, things like uh, oysters uh, are, you know, the most rapidly growing part of the, the seafood market. I mean, we do need those activities, you know, to, to, you know, to, to provide, uh, you know, sustainable food for people. This is what so, so I mean, you know, we, we need to be on here. Yeah. Yes, because people think, oh, yeah. fish farm bad. Okay, so no, (laughs) some fish farm bad. It's like saying all farmers abuse their cattle. Like there are people who do uh, unethically manage their agriculture business. And there are people who are very dedicated to creating and and having. I just want to just put that out there when we're talking about this. And we're with Paul, Paul Benson. He's a professor of biology at Dalhousie University, specializing in evolution and genetics and a researcher who's helping repopulate Atlantic whitefish in Nova Scotia. So let's get back to what you're doing, professor. Um, what, what is your ultimate goal here? What do you think can be achieved by, by what you have discovered and been successful in doing uh, over the last number of months? Well, what I th- what I think we can do, um, you know, and we're a long ways from a, a, a achieving this objective, but you know, we can not only bring this uh, fish back from the brink of extinction that it's been at for years, as I said, um, but bring it to a point where it is secure and it doesn't need help from people like me. Um, this is a really unusual fish. Um, I mean, it well, it, it's it's an unusual fish for a whitefish. So whitefish are in the same family as salmon, but but most whitefish species, and there are many of them, they they don't have any interest in the ocean. But uh, Atlantic whitefish do. They're very similar to to salmon in that regard. They want to breed in fresh water, go out to sea for a, a while and get big and fat, and then go back and spawn. Mm-hmm. Um, that part of their natural life history has completely disappeared. The only surviving population is just hanging on by the skin of its teeth. Uh, is landlocked behind uh, a dam, um, so it's, it's it's living entirely in freshwater. But we've shown in the lab that if you take the babies and you give them the option to move into saltwater, they do it. And so, even though this population has been isolated from the ocean for maybe a century, they still have the adaptation. They still have the the drive you know, to go to sea. So this is what we want to reestablish. We want to get. Whitefish populations in multiple locations in Nova Scotia and maybe beyond, you know, and, you know, who knows, uh, in Atlantic Canada, uh, you know, breeding and, and, and completing this life cycle of, you know, spawn in freshwater, go to sea, come back. That is such a great initiative. That's such a great want when you talk about being trapped behind a dam. I mean, on the West Coast, we are so acutely aware of the struggles of salmon um, when when their spawning roots are blocked for a natural reason or man-made reason. And and to know that that's intrinsically, you know, genetically in the in the brains or in the in the just the nature of these fish, that's so fascinating that they would know what to do, even though they were born in captivity. And where would they go to spawn? I guess I could talk to you all day about this. I find it so fascinating. Yeah. So you release them well, and they head out to the yeah. ocean and then they turn around, they come back to where you release them or? 
That's right, Tim. We, you know, we, 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 we know so little about, you know, the details of this species because, by, as I said, by the time scientists knew about it, it was already almost gone. Right. Um, you know, so it hasn't had the kind of study that every other member of the Salmonid family you know, has had where we know, you know, the intimate details of how they live. Um, we're, with this species, there's a lot more guesswork involved because mm-hmm. we don't have those details. But, but we know that um, they seem to like to spawn in lakes, which is a, which is a whitefish thing. So it's not a salmon thing. Um, but, right. yeah. but then unlike, as I said, all the other species of whitefish, or nearly all of them, um, then the babies decide, okay, now it's time to go downriver um, and, and spend some time in the ocean uh, before coming back home again. Um, so salmon-like, except they use a lake instead of, you know, just a river to, for their bad. breeding. Um, so fascinating. Thank you so much, Professor, for sharing with us today and really educating us. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you on my, my uh, call sheet here and, and check back in with you and see how this continues, because I... I get the feeling, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is something that, if, if ultimately successful, could be applied to other types of, of wildlife, other fish. It, 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 sure, it, it can. And, and in fact, you know, it, indeed it is for other endangered species in Canada. We're not the only you know, folks doing this because you know, we have a sadly long list of endangered species in Canada, and there are similar rescues efforts going yeah. on for other species, you know, so right. we're not you're humble too. You're yeah. humble too. That's so funny. Yeah. Uh, thank you. We are shining a lighting a light on you specifically, and you're going to have to deal with it. Thank you for what okay. you're well, doing. Is what I try to okay. <laughs> thank you. That is professor Paul Benson, professor of biology at Dalhousie university, specializing in evolution and genetics and a researcher helping to repopulate Atlantic whitefish in Nova Scotia. With alongside my good friend, Eric Chapman. Hi. Hello, Ease. Hi. Happy Canada Day to Back you, at you, my friend. Uh, yeah, yeah. What are we doing tomorrow? You told me we got an event to go to tomorrow. Yeah, we're going to the downtown east side. Uh, it's the Artist Collective, and they're having a, an, an event down there, and we'll get a little more details on that from Sarah Blythe. But uh, um, there's also the, the, they lost someone down at the overdose prevention site. I mentioned Sarah Blythe because she runs it. It's the overdose prevention site. It does exactly that. And these people literally save thousands of lives. And recently they lost someone that is a hero. There's, there's no other way to put it. Um, it's, uh, like I said, it's run by Sarah. So I just called her up to chat to her about Kevin and the event that's going on tomorrow. Kevin was a friend to Ops and a volunteer and someone who saved many lives and was really good at overdoses. And uh, just a person who came and t- and um, you know, in the middle of a crisis, he was he volunteered a lot in 2019, um, and I think he moved on to other work. But he was really involved and really helpful at just uh, motivating people and mm-hmm. and just another volunteer that really cared about people and saved another hero in the downtown east side that everyone cared for and and loved. So he's really, you know, a lot of people knew him. Um, I've you know, I've seen just by putting his name up online that there's people from all, you know, lots of people that I didn't know knew him and knew what he was like and what he, as a person. And it's very difficult. It's very challenging. Um, you know, uh, sometimes you come up on people that you need to do mouth to mouth in the middle of COVID or, you know, like, I mean, not at our site, but, you know, outside our site, yeah. people went beyond and really, really challenging times. And um, uh, I don't think people understand some of the situations that 
people really get themselves into just dealing with the crisis as it is. It's a really tough one. Um, the overdoses are really tough. It's really hard to mentally handle that, that some of the that you come to someone who might be blue. It takes a certain kind of person. In the end, we just need to, it just shows that we there's more need to get a safe supply to people so that, you know, some of these folks um, aren't having to do this really hard, stressful work indefinitely. Yeah, and you mentioned, yeah, indefinitely, that's the, that's the key word here. And you mentioned he was... Yeah motivating and that and it, it just kind of just goes to what you said uh, about them right there like staying motivated and doing it that's so important when you're working down there and and I guess I, when you said I was interested in what you said at really good at overdoses but I think you just explained it really good right there for people to understand yeah I mean it really it, you know each overdose has its own challenge um you never know what someone's taken um it's really hard to know what toxic drugs they may they have in their systems and there's all sorts of things and instead of losing someone is always there and you can always you know people turn blue it's really really traumatic yeah well i'm glad we could take i'm glad we could take a minute to share that uh and and on the uh, and also stuff that's going on the uh that i didn't i don't know i just heard of this for the first time i saw your tweet so i thought i'd get into this because it's happening saturday the downtown and it just yeah. goes to show the I just love it again. Like I talked to Smokey D about art and, and how it brings, a, and this is kind of an example perfect, you know, how it brings a community together and it's a chance for people to go and see what's going on. So tell me about the Downtown Eastside Collective art gallery that's happening. And who is the Downtown Eastside Collective? So the Downtown Eastside Collective is a collective of artists from the Downtown Eastside together to uh, collaborate on different projects, whether it be, um, you know, helping with Chinatown. And so we um, we got into the Motel Six. We've got a place there. Um, it's a, that's a place where artists go create art and have gallery shows and and events um, with mural festivals. And David Dupree and some of the folks put that together. And so we're a part of that. And we've got a really nice space to be able to show art and invite people to out of the downtown east side from the downtown east side, but also invite people to come and see some of Smokey's art and Ken Foster's art and some of the meet some of the artists that are famous in Vancouver in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, so it's just another way we're trying to get people out of the downtown East side and, and also see some of the amazing culture that comes from the downtown East side and some of the amazing paintings. And we had people to the gallery for the opening of the mural fest last week and it was packed with people and they love the art and so we just want to continue it every Saturday from noon to 6 p.m. every Saturday throughout the summer. Let's talk like you mentioned Ken Foster right there like as you were mentioning that's a yeah that's a world famous artist I would argue because there's people that come oh, yeah. from you I mean, know uh, they're, they're making a film about you know a documentary film filmed about Smokey right now there's been documentaries about Ken Foster, and yes, he's world famous. These some of these artists are world famous. Um, they they will have original art there, and it'll it's very affordable compared to you know prints that you buy, and it's better than most, I would say. I mean, it's amazing yes. art, and they're amazing people, and this is an amazing project. Yeah, and you know, buy some art, help out some some artists in a community in the downtown east side, and and get some original art for a fair price. 
Yeah. What? What? Where's the location again? Remind us. It's at Six and Main at the hotel, the motel, so that the um, the mural fest has taken over. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. And uh, and we're down there, and we're having a good old time. And everybody's welcome to come and hang out or meet us or uh, you know just be part of something cool. And this weekend and every Saturday for the next foreseeable future through the summer, between noon and six, you can go to the motel at 6th and Main Street and check out the art. You can see art from Ken Foster, uh, Smokey the Devil, all kinds of people. So it's really something that's going to, that's creating some community and bringing other communities in to see the cool culture that actually is down there instead of what you might think it is. Some of the artwork is just spectacular. Motel 6, 6th and Main, you said noon to six on Saturdays? Yeah, every Saturday for the next little while here. Okay, I dig that. Awesome. I love Sarah Blythe. She won the Woman of Distinction from the YWCA this year, too. And she Good. deserves it. She is yep. an unbelievable executive director of Overdose Prevention Society Vancouver, literally saving lives on the downtown east side every single day. Uh, we send our love to uh, everybody who who knew and loved Kevin. And we're going to connect with good friend of the program, Kyla Lee. You know her. You've heard her speaking about all things legalities uh, specific to, to traffic infractions and and uh, and when and knowing what the laws are around roadside testing and all of that. But today, we're not necessarily leaning into acumen law per se, but we are leaning into the reaction and the anger that is being sort of thrown around uh, in all walks of society, but certainly lawyers like Kyla have been receiving some real escalation in the angry comments specific to her social media. I was perusing my Twitter feed and both Eric and I were watching along and which is like, what's happening? Let's have Kyla on and talk about this. So she's with me on this Canada Day. Happy Canada Day to you, Kyla Lee. Same to you, Jody. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you. But just before the break, we were talking about COVID-19 and, and reinfection of COVID-19. Keith Baldry was referencing that with a couple of callers. And, and I know this is sort of off topic of what we were going to speak to here. But yet again, a close contact for you. You've had COVID twice, right? I've had it twice. Yes, last time in May. And uh, I was exposed earlier this week. So I'm spending the weekend at home. <laughs> yeah. Yay. We were supposed to get together and have a beverage on yeah. a patio. But no, because you're you're taking all of the precautions. And I very much respect that. Um, And you are now having extra time to peruse on social media. What are you finding the reaction to be like um, in, in this moment in time and how has it evolved over the last couple of years? You know, it's no matter what you post now, if you post anything, you could post a photo of your dog. There will be at least one person, usually multiple people who respond with hateful, angry, insulting comments. I had somebody, I posted a photo of my dog, I'm not lying, and they responded and said, that's the ugliest dog I've ever seen. Who does that? And it it doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Wrigley is adorable, by the way. Wrigley might be one of the cutest dogs on social media. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't take that to heart, but I mean, even in the last week, I've had people calling me the C word, the B word, um, you know, radio inappropriate language, um, just for posting, you know, stories about my life. That's just so bizarre. I I had somebody post this morning and I replied to it knowing we were going to do this, uh, this segment, because I thought, you know what, is it time that we just, we push back a little because up until a certain point, it was, Oh, just ignore them. I mean, the mm-hmm. want to say, hey, scroll on by there, buddy. Or because, you know, they're always anonymous 
uh, avatars with some random collection of names. And sometimes when you hit on it, they're they're bot like, you know, following mm-hmm. two people with zero, fo- whatever. Um, but somebody actually stopped. It was one of the threads with me and Linda Steele on the new show that we're doing. And there's all this love coming out. It's love, 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 love. And somebody just took the time to wrote to write, ooh, ick, not at Jody Vance. And I'm like, really? I, I mean, doesn't that say more about the person who posts that than it does about, you know, in a long list of people telling, and it was actually on Linda's feed, a long list of people saying nice things. Why would you do that? Is it an attention-seeking thing? I really don't know the answer here. I, I think it's all this pent-up frustration we have. I mean, we're dealing with the, the problems with the economy, problems with housing. We've had, you know, two and a half years of pandemic living in some, uh, you know, in some form or another. Um, yeah. There's uh, a difficulty if you run a business, hiring employees and finding workers, and that stress for people who are employees and working on having to take on more responsibility at work. I think everybody's just at the end of their rope. And it's super easy when you're in front of your keyboard, you're upset, it's been a hard day or a hard week to just take it out on a stranger on the internet and blame them for all of the problems in the world and insult them. And, but the insults that you're referencing on your social media, I mean, it is really something. I think you're one of the great follows on Twitter and, and on Instagram. I enjoy your content immensely, particularly when you're rating potato chips. I mean, come on, (laughs) it's light. It's fun. We have a good, that's how you and I met. I mean, we would do, we would do like the occasional in-studio pre-pandemic where we would be able to have conversations about your actual work being a lawyer, but really getting to know each other has been largely online. And, and it's just, it strikes me as so odd that that's where we're going as a society, that when we're upset about something, we'll take it out on anyone. And I've always been the type of person that's Try, you know, probably overshared uh, online and, and tried to be very open about who I am. Um, because I think, you know, if somebody hears my story, whatever it is, um, they can relate to that. And it might help them with whatever they're struggling with. So when people turn around and, you know, attack me for anything that I post, it really does make me very scared the next time I go to post something. I'm finding myself censoring what I'm posting these days because I'm afraid of what the reaction is going to be. I even deleted a tweet earlier this week, which I never do, um, because I was terrified about being doxxed. Weird. Isn't that just bizarre? Because you have been very open, and that does help people. And then others still find reason to take issue that you would share. And and that, to me, is, I think, the, the ugly unintended piece, I think, of social media where where there can be a sense of community that is so beautiful in one area. And then, it, it like you said, you just post a picture of your dog and somebody's going to slag you for that. Like, it just, I don't know. I wanted to have this conversation because I think it's important for people to, to realize how that angry post is being consumed. It is, I hope that it is more and more reflective of the person posting rather than attracting more negative attention to you. Doxing is scary, though. It is. And, you know, we've seen lots of instances of doxing lately. I mean, even look at the U.S. Supreme Court justices who were doxed after Roe v. Wade. Like, you may not agree with their decision, but they were doing their job. They considered the law. They came to a conclusion. They shouldn't be afraid to rule in a case that their credit card numbers are going to be leaked online. Uh, The idea that that the Internet has this much power over people, um, it's making the world quite a terrifying place. And it doesn't matter whether 
you're identifying as centrist, left, right, whatever it is, whatever your belief system is, doxing is wrong. Like finding out where somebody lives or rallying the the social media universe to target somebody, their workplace, their home life, their family members. I mean, you know, I can disagree all day long with someone, but I still don't want anybody camped outside their home threatening their family with their kids inside. Like this is where things have gotten incredibly over the top. I wish that we could go back to the days where when people disagreed online that it was a respectful discourse where people would be open-minded. I used to find that, especially on Twitter, where people would consider the other side of the issue. There would be discussion and maybe people would change their minds or they would agree to disagree. But you could have a polite discussion. And somewhere along the way, we've lost that. I think the pandemic has contributed to it in the sense that we've kind of, without having as much social interaction, have forgotten how we treat other people. Because, you know, if you say some of the things that you say to people on, not you, but if if they are being said online, um, you know, you might get hit in the face. (laughs) You wouldn't say it to somebody's face because you'd be worried about that type of reaction. I, I just, you know, I think we've lost that with the last two and a half years. It really is quite something. People who get obsessive about others on social media might need to check themselves and and ask if perhaps a little digital detox might be in order. It's how do we get ourselves out of this? Because there was a time, as as I said earlier, where you know, I mean, I was a one female sports broadcaster, and luckily most of my fans were really really kind to me. But there would be the occasional one that would would come at me in a way that would be you know, what am I doing there? I have no right to do it because I'm a woman, which is just ridiculous. And, and I was told, just ignore that. Just, just ignore that. They'll go away. And that's when, you know, we, we sort of just couched it thicker skin, no worries, ignore, ignore, ignore. That is taking, I think there's a new path to that, that there's a way to meet people where they are. And as you said, Kyla, have that conversation that says, listen, we can have a conversation. We don't have to agree. But don't just hurl insults. That gets us nowhere. Having the convert, like why my response to the person who posted that Wrigley, whatever, is an ugly, ugliest dog he's ever seen. Um, why? 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 Why do you feel the need to, to diss my dog? And can't you see the cuteness behind those beautiful, sparkly eyes that really just want the treat in my hand? You know what I yeah. mean? Like there's a way to diffuse this. How do we get there? I think that's where we where we go from here. Yeah. And, you know, I know that governments have proposed legislation to suggest that, you know, there can be consequences for online harassment or online hate. That legislation proposals have not really gone anywhere. The Internet seems to be an unenforceable place. So I think it is going to be a collective effort that we all have to make to get back to a better place online. I think you and I talking about it helps even just one person. Thank you for doing this, Kyla. As always, I appreciate you. Thanks, Jody. Well, it's not bizarre as long weekend traffic. It is pretty epic. And that's why even though he just gave you a little snippet and used the term holy cannoli, he is one of my favorites. He saves me often from traffic nightmares. Mark Staling, the executive producer of AM730 is with us. Hey, Mark. Hey, Jody. How's it going? Good. Uh, much better than those trying to get across at the Peace Arch or perhaps going either direction on Highway 1 right now in the valley. Holy cannoli, like you said. Tell us where the problems are. Well, yeah, I mean, a quick note on Highway 1. I mean, thankfully, there's no more issues. But if you are going east, I mean, I'm just 
worried that it's just never really going to recover all that much here. It's just busy. Uh, the worst of it is pretty much the length of the Abbotsford stretch. There was a pretty nasty crash like hour, hour and a half ago uh, near Sumas yeah. Way. It's gone. But yeah, from Mount Lehman all the way through, it's just very busy and, you know, not a huge surprise. A lot of people still, you know, making their way east, uh, you know, away from town. And that's all it is now. It's just mega, mega volume out there on Highway 1 East. A few slowdowns through Langley that isn't too crazy. But yeah, through that uh, Abbotsford stretch, um, it is it is really really slow. One thing I didn't mention, I'm just having a quick peek here. Um, it yeah. is quite busy. A lot of people are also heading up the Sea to Sky Highway, Highway 99. Really busy up past Lions Bay, and then there's that pesky light through Britannia Beach. Um, mm-hmm. The thing with the Sea to Sky, though, it's you know. There's no other option. If you're heading up that way, you're committed and you just need to be patient. But just a word of warning that there are some slowdowns as well uh, heading up that way. But uh, certainly the worst lineups are at the border, as you were hinting at. And it's getting to a point now where the lineups are so long that it, it becomes very tricky for us to be, you know, exact to a minute in regards to, you know, how long the wait is going to be. But with the Peace Arch lineup, Highway 99 southbound backed up almost to 8th Avenue. Historically, that's closer to a three-hour wait than a two-hour wait. So um, really, really, really slow haul there. Make sure you got plenty of gas and make sure you really, uh, you know, you're, you know how long this wait is and you're committed to going because, uh, you know, if you're just popping down to grab some... I don't know, what's the thing they get at Trader Joe's? Orange chicken at Trader Joe's or whatever. Some, you know, thing that you can only get down south. Maybe today's not the best day to do that. Southbound Pack Highway looks like it's probably close to two hours as well. Um, So I would go Pack Highway over Peace Arch. It's better, but it certainly isn't very good. Not the day to go get the liver dog treats at Trader Joe's. That's why I go there. Three ninety five <laughs> for the big bag. It's they're 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 the locale ones. My my elder dog really enjoys those. Um, Mark, when it comes to the ferries, now we have been watching along on the story with the Queen of Alberni out due to mechanical yesterday. I don't think I'd ever seen uh, an email from BC Ferries saying we're sold out. Don't don't come here. <laughs> like if you're going yeah, to what terrible timing for the queen Washington. of Alberni yesterday was just horrible. It's not quite as bad today. Um, like if you're trying to get from horseshoe Bay to departure Bay, you're still a ways off. Like the next sailing, when you combine cancellations and sailing weights, the next run from Horseshoe Bay to Departure Bay that has room is at 355. It is yeah. listed as, it has plenty of room on it, so you should be able to get that one. But that is certainly a ways off. Coming back isn't as as nasty. Yeah, the 125 uh, sailing is what's up next. Uh, from Departure Bay to Horseshoe Bay, the 1225 canceled, by the way. The 125 is about uh, 60% full. Now, the thing you got to keep in mind is if you can get to Nanaimo by sailing out of Tawasson, the 1245 to Austin to Duke Point is full. The 315, uh, that's two-thirds full. So busy there. Um, to Austin to Swartz Bay, like, and, and vice versa, isn't too bad because, thankfully, no cancellations. You know, there's a sailing every single hour to Austin to Swartz Bay. So while it's certainly busy there, um, you'll be able to get on and, and get where you need to go. But uh, the timing with the Queen of Alberni, you know, going down certainly is 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 pretty pretty terrible, especially for the last kind of 48 hours here. And so we've been dealing with all the cancellations as well these last few weeks due to staffing issues. So if it isn't a staffing issue, well, the boat breaks down, which is what we've dealt with uh, recently here. Feels like there's always a mechanical going into a long weekend, or is that just Murphy's Law? Mark Sailing, always a pleasure to have some time uh, to bend your ear and and get the most up-to-date traffic, borders, and ferries. Appreciate you, and we'll be checking in with AM730, of course, as we do throughout the afternoon.
Thank you, Jody. Happy Canada Day to everybody. Love the fact that we can gather once again. We can hang out together. We can go to a restaurant, support the restaurant industry. We can go to some of the coolest places in the country. And for the first time ever, the best restaurant in Canada is right here. Right in here. Published on Main is the best restaurant in Canada. And the bar manager and beverage director at Published on Main, Dylan Riches, joins me on the line. Hi, Dylan. Hi, Jody. How are you? I'm doing great. It's so glad to, I'm so glad to have you on here because, full disclosure, you are the fiancé of our producer today, Bianca Rego. And Bianca, every time she references you, references you she says, my, my fiancé, my fiancé. It took me a while to know your name was Dylan. She's so proud. She's also proud of being somebody who named one of the cocktails on the cocktail list at Published. That's right. Um, I should I should preface. I don't want to take credit where credit's not due. I am not the beverage director published. I'm I'm the bar manager. We um, have a team of, of beverage managers. Jaden Paul, who is our wine director, looks after the wine side of things. So I just wanted to clarify that um, while I have funny. a moment. Um, but uh, yeah, she is very good at giving me names and spitballing lots of ideas with me when we're we're doing menu development and the um, our cocktail called April. Uh, on the menu right now was um, a product of her imagination. Okay, so what cocktail uh, would you suggest we put together for Canada Day? Do you got do you got some to suggest? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know for for a long weekend like this, I think you want to have a mixture of something that's delicious, but also something that's really easy to make. Um, you know, if if we're having people over or we're doing something, you know, we're we're out. Somewhere um, we don't want to be doing something that's too time-consuming or or too um, you know laborious. Uh, we want something that we can make rather quickly and that we can also enjoy uh, as well. So I, I, I right now summertime is a, a wonderful time in BC and Vancouver has a lot of wonderful produce that's coming out. Um, so for me, something like a like a bourbon peach smash um, would be like a wonderful weekend cocktail. Um, you know, it, you, all you need is some kind of whiskey. I, per, I would prefer bourbon in, in this chance. Um, uh, I, probably my reach would be old granddad bonded bourbon. Um, but mm. rye, a rye whiskey could work really well, too. Lot 40 um, is nice and affordable and, and has, is really good quality. Um, we, we could get some peaches which, or, or nectarines, any kind of stone fruit, which is starting to come into season and, and, and starting to be ripe. Um, and then you just need a little bit of what we call a simple syrup, um, which is just a, a one uh, one part sugar, one part water that you mix together. Um, and then you can add a little bit of that into your cocktail as well. If you find it's too sweet, I always say just squeeze a little bit of lemon into it just to balance it and bring a little bit of bright acidity to the drink. You have those three. That those sounds so three. delicious. Yeah. Um, you have so we're going stone fruit. Oh, I love this. Sorry. Let's go over it just so people going, oh, hey, what, what? So stone yeah. fruit like peaches or apricots. So great. So would you would you put that in the Vitamix? Would you blend it up? Are you slicing you, it up? Are you muddling you could, it? What, how are we doing? Yeah, you could. Um, honestly, I say like the least amount of work, especially in these situations, is the best. Just slice it up, put it into your shaker or some kind of mixing vessel, and then give it a nice little muddle. Uh, we're going to shake it up anyway, so you're going to get all those juices that are, that are from the fruit. Um, I would add two ounces of your spirit of choice. Um, uh, like I said, let's go bourbon. Rye. I love bourbon. It hurts yeah. me, but I love it. It hurts my feelings, <laughs> but I enjoy it so much. And it does balance out. It's got that, that richness and that smooth sort of sweet vibe that, that gives a little fire and, and plays well off of, off of that, that sweeter fruit. I think that's, 
That's a great one. I love the tip as well about squeezing a little lemon in there because the simple syrup for, for people like me who like a little less of the sweet, I might yeah. do a soda with that and, and, and freshen it up. And because you can really take a cocktail and, 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 and sort of stretch it a little bit if you don't want everybody. Like if I have two of those, two ounces of bourbon, uh, two of those, Jody be sleeping on the lawn chair. That's, that's what <laughs> would be happening at the Canada Day party. I'm a little bit of a lightweight. So Dylan, yeah. when people want to come to Published on Main, uh, do we have to book like six months in advance now that you're the best restaurant in Canada? I, I will say reservations have definitely, um, I mean, we, we've, we saw a lot roll in, um, which has been a, a wonderful blessing. Um, right now, uh, we are fully booked um, up until uh, the end of September, but I believe today we have opened up our, our reservation books for the month of September. Um, so... We, we this are is me with my quickly. thumbs on my phone right now. This is me on my <laughs> thumbs on my phone. I got to go. I got to yeah. go right now, Dylan. Thank you for this. I'm going to come and visit you at Published on Main. Dylan Riches is the bar manager at Published, and I've been looking at the cocktail list. That alone will get me there, but boy, the food looks good too. Obviously, it is, as Published on Main has been named, the best restaurant in Canada. Thanks for your time. Good luck with your fiance. She's doing a great job here at the radio station. We love working with Bianca as well. Thanks for this. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be on. You know, it's been a really tough go these last couple of years. That's an understatement, isn't it? Right? Still difficult. COVID's still with us. But the one thing that really did change for every single person across the globe, and certainly in this corner of the world, was the go home, stay home, and stay apart. Stay by yourself. And, and having to Zoom with your friends, the five o'clock Zoom cocktail, you know, it's just not the same couple of friends uh, and, and I got together recently and we literally were moved to almost tears just at being in the same space together after so, so long. I will tell you though that one bright light over the course of the pandemic when doing all of my work that uh, on varied fronts, I'm a freelancer, I fill in here, I do some work for Al Jazeera English, I do podcasts with, with George Affleck, I do a bunch of stuff and all of it comes from my house. And a girlfriend of mine, Leah Goche, who is the creator, co-creator of the Jan show, Jan Arden show, uh, was, was part of our bubble. Um, she was like a member of our family. So she was around and she was like, can I redo your living room? And she's the one who redid the behind me, if you will, my Zoom room. And I woke up one day to our next guest having put me on her platform, Room Raider. And giving me all of these compliments and giving me a 10 out of 10, the coveted 10 out of 10. I'm telling you what, I'm still floating because of that little piece of positivity that landed right in my lap. And we have since Jesse Berry and I become friends. We've never actually met in person. That is definitely in the books. But Jesse joins me now to talk through her new book, How to Zoom Your Room and How Much Attention Room Raider has brought her way. Jesse, thank you. Welcome. Good to finally speak to you in person. Good morning, Jody. Happy Canada Day. Happy Canada Day to you, my friend. Okay, let's start with how Room Raider came to be, this phenomenon of Room Raider. Uh, about three weeks after most of the borders were being shut down, um, uh, my partner and I who lives in D.C., we spent a lot of time at home. Obviously, everybody was, and we were news junkies anyway. So we started making comments just to each other and to our friends as well about how the journalists look so different in their own homes rather than in the studio. And mm -hmm. jokingly, we were just messing around, and we decided, why don't we just give it a, a rating out of 10, and why don't we put it on Twitter? And then 
as the kids say, it kind of went viral, took off, and here we are. It's so funny. And I remember viscerally and vividly when Keith Baldry, who was, you know what, this is so cool, just recently, just this week, you were featured (laughs) on ABC News. Oh my gosh, like what was that? And then Keith Baldry flashed up as part of that, sort of an animated Baldry, because you said it looked like, it looked like Keith was in jail. It kind of did. Um, actually, the funny <laughs> thing about how that all worked out was because he was the, um, the the first Canadian I did. And it was it really came out of just that was the newscast that I used to watch at 5 to 5.30. And, yeah. um, you know, I kind of thought, mm, okay, I wonder if he's going to be able to take that as a joke because it really isn't a great room <laughs> because of the bars in the back. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so uh, he was a good sport and uh, ended up being a contributor for our book. And, you know, along the way, there were so few people that didn't have fun with it that um, it, was, so it was just very refreshing and it was, it was lovely to see and, and actually interact with all these people that I had watched on TV for years. It is just so fabulous. If you want to follow Room Raider, you can on social media. But I also uh, highly recommend you follow Jessie herself. Jessie Barry is her name. It's spelled B-A-H-R-E-Y if you're going to look her up on your social media. But it, it is so funny how this has evolved. So How to Zoom Your Room is your book that you and your partner in Room Raider have have put together. And let's get some tips right now for, for people like I... First and foremost, no cords. You don't want a cord violation violation. to make you a 9 out of 10. Like, no cords. (laughs) Hide your cord. Pop a pillow. You need a punch of... Get a plant. Like, what are we doing? We don't have to spend a million dollars in Zooming our room, right? You know, the funny thing is when we first got the book deal, we thought it was going to be commemorative of a time in everybody's lives where we were all stuck at home. And somewhere along the line, it ended up being a how-to book. And we really try to make it uh, easy for anybody to do. You don't have to have a pile of money or time. Um, I mean, just briefly, we've um, suggested lighting is always like a really big issue and you don't have to have a lot of fancy ring lights and the things that studios have. Um, I personally have dragged every lamp in my house into my Zoom background just to add light. Um, Another one that a lot of people get wrong is just simply the height of the device you are using for a camera. Um, the nostril view, we call it. Nobody wants to look up <laughs> nostrils. Mm-hmm. And I have a stack of uh, hardcover books that I use to put my iPad on just so that it's at eye level. And you'd be surprised at how many people don't get that right. And again, easy fix. Um, yeah, mine's a bread box. One, my, it, literally a bread box that, that my yeah. computer sits <laughs> yeah. on whenever. Because <laughs> it's just the right Nothing height. Fancy. I, yeah. You just want to look the camera dead on, right? And that's yeah. a dead on or just a little up. Because you know how you do the selfie, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. At least the ladies. We all put the hand up. Just, you know, it's the Elizabeth Taylor. Know where your light's coming from. And then it's, it's, that, it's that flattering perspective, but also gives you depth behind you. That's another thing I learned from, from yeah. Room Raider and how to mm-hmm. zoom your room, right? It instantly makes it more interesting and um, just not just aesthetically pleasing just to see the rest of the room. And, you know, everybody is curious about what people have in their houses, you know, like it's just sort of a, a human thing, I think, to to wonder what everybody else does. And it's kind of I feel like it brings people together because we all have pets. We all have kids. We all were trying to manage a million things while working from home um, yeah. and 
you know, it, it kind of made you feel like everybody, even the people that usually are in studios, they're going through exactly what we were going through. It's so true. It normalizes and humanizes mm-hmm. everything. I want to r- remind people how to Zoom your room available anywhere you get books. Yep. The usual outlets. Yep. Wide release. I love this. How to Zoom your room. And it gives you the ability to maybe poach from around your house because that's how my Zoom room came to be. My friend Leah mm-hmm. literally walked through every room in my house and said, you're going to she, you're gonna have to fill that hole in the wall uh, on, in your bedroom because I took this picture that you inherited from your grandmother and that's going in your living room now like she literally did the the, the, she went shopping in my house that's what we (laughs) called it going shopping and a couple of like i said strategically placed lamps and a couple of pops Mm -hmm. of color on my you said great pillow game i was like i love this it's so exciting (laughs) and again the pillows are something easy you know you probably have them in another room bring them into the zoom room and then we always um encourage people to have a little bit of a personal touch um Photos, family photos are wonderful. Um, something that that isn't, especially if you're working from home in a um, in an actual office and it's a bit clinical and boring. Bring in some color. Bring in a plant. I always say that because I work in the industry. Um, yes. Bring in. Um, you love an orchid. Family too. photos. You love an orchid. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, orchids yeah. are good. Um, but just make it personal, you know, have have uh, something that means something to you because um, it'll break up people. People really do want to see that part. They don't necessarily need to see, you know, the stack of books you have on the side of your desk. Um, uh, we, we say play with it, have fun. I mean, the whole point is to have fun. Yeah. We're we're chilling a little bit. Where perfection, the the illusion of the perfect studio was what we, everybody seemed to be going for in early days. I remember being so stressed out that my dogs might bark, and now I'm like, yeah. oh, the dot scout. That's you know, oh, Calvin's at it again. I think he saw a squirrel. Yeah. Like I'm not I'm not worried about it anymore because everybody's got this going on. And and it, honestly, exactly. Jesse, you brought some fun and light and levity to a very dark dark time for so many people. And and I I hope that people buy your book, How to Zoom Thank Your you. Room. Jesse Barry, you and I are overdue for a cup of coffee or a glass of wine on a patio somewhere, and it's on Let's me, do sister. The I love wine. That. I'm wine in. I love that 10 out of 10 so much. All right. Cheers. Have a great day, Thanks, and we'll touch base yeah, soon. You too. See okay. you online. Bye. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.